Welcome back to A Holy Mess with His Holy Mess, Father Paul. This is episode 17, and I'm very excited uh, to be here today with my guest, Dr. Janet Smith, Professor Janet Smith. She uh, was on a couple weeks ago uh, when I had a very messy live uh, YouTube show honoring Pope Benedict the 16th, and she was so uh, gracious to come on the show and uh, deliver a very beautiful reflection on the life and the papacy of Benedict XVI. And uh, Dr. Smith, I have to tell you that many people uh, singled out your uh, section um, when you spoke about uh, how beautiful it was, uh, and uh, even my my mother, who uh, <laughs> even Always my like to make the mothers happy. Yes, yes, very much so. So thank you so much, and welcome back, welcome back to a holy mess with his holy mess. Thank you for saying yes to this. Glad to be here. So, yeah, okay. And, I, you know, we try to be funny on this because I try to add a little comedy thing. And there was a, you know, uh, I, I was going to do audio and you were all set, set for the video. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, we could do video. And then I have this horrible background here, which is so plain and dull. And um, so I was running around to get my green screen ready. And you were already taking out your earrings. Don't worry about it. Let's do audio. <laughs> <laughs> but uh no so thank you for being so so flexible and uh i i remember your sense of humor um from when you uh taught uh one of the courses that i took at black rock retreat center for the theology of the body institute about 10 no that was going on 12 years now hmm. 12 years and i i love your sense of humor let me just say i'll repeat a little bit from the uh uh talk about a little bit about the bio about who you are uh, Dr. Smith, Janet Smith, is a retired, she is retired from Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit, Michigan, where she held the Father Michael J. McGivney Chair of Life Ethics. She is the author of Humanae Vitae, A Generation Later, and A Right to Privacy. Self-Gift is a volume of her already published essays on Humanae Vitae and the thought of John Paul II. She edited why Humana Vitae is Right, A Reader, Life Issues, Medical Choices with Christopher Kayser. And also, she, among many other things, she writes regularly for the National Catholic Register and for Crisis Magazine. She has received three honorary doctorates and several other awards for scholarship and service. And more than two million copies of her talk, Contraception, Why Not?, have been distributed. Uh, and all of her materials can be found, and I'll put this in the show notes, at janetsmith.org. That's janetsmith.org. Free copies of her talks are, are available here. So I, I got to tell you, I haven't had anybody on with a bio like that before. You are most likely my most accomplished guest mm -hmm. on this very messy podcast. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I can clean up anything. If you looked at the space I was living in right now, you'd say, hmm, she does know what a mess is. Yeah, well, hey, that's that's the one thing that I'm finding out about this that everybody is like confining on me. Even though I I I don't think they're a mess at all. They're like, you know what? I really like this podcast. That you know, I got to be honest with you, I'm kind of a holy mess myself. 
<laughs> and I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, even an exorcist I was on here was like, yeah, I'm kind of a holy mess. And I'm like, oh, my <laughs> goodness. So um, I, I have to ask you, I wrote down some questions. I'm uh, a little a little bit prepared, but people uh, know how I roll on here. But um, sorry. Right, so you, you're known for many, many things. Um, but let's just start off right off the bat. I asked you. Uh, if we could please do an episode on contraception, contraception, why not, which is a talk that you are uh, known for. We just heard that 2 million copies of it have been uh, distributed. Um, you know, I, I usually when I hear like maybe a podcast of, of contraception, why not, or, or a talk that you're giving or something on Humana Vitae kind of gets right into the topic matter. But I want to find out just a little bit about you. How did, how did you even get involved in this? How did, how did you become somebody that became so interested in this area of theology? Well, a very good question. In a sense, I'm, I'm, I wasn't. In a sense, I maybe even may not be all that interested. <laughs> I'm, if, if I write a biography, which I don't, autobiography, it might be called Pushed Around by the Holy Spirit. I never thought of it. I never thought that, you know, I mean, who, who thinks that they're going to be doing what they're doing uh, when they're much younger, that, that's very unusual person who follows a path in life that they've charted out very young. But I, uh, I got very interested in classical languages when I was an undergraduate. I thought I was going to do sociology of all things, and I actually thought if I learned classical languages, I could help save Western civilization. That was my goal, and so I, I. I studied the classical languages, got a PhD in that, and just loved it. Uh, but along the way, abortion became legalized. And I got very involved in the pro-life movement. And I did a lot of speaking. I was a graduate student at the University of Toronto. And it's going to be a long story. I'll try to make it short. But anyway, I, I got... I'm all ears, Doc. All speaking in the in the high schools. And they would often bring in um, Planned Parenthood uh, before or after we spoke, or sometimes even for debates, which I really loved. Uh, but they stopped bringing in Planned Parenthood after the pro-life speakers came because we armed the students with so many good arguments. They'd made mincemeat out of the Planned Parenthood speakers. So often I would get asked the question, uh, what do you think about contraception? And I said, there, I would answer, there are two completely separate issues. And I'm here to talk about the taking of human life. One prevents a human life from coming to be, and the other one actually kills a human life. Uh, but then there was a, I had a group of friends at the University of Toronto, and we were all young graduate students, and we all had some, we were sort of simultaneously became very interested in our faith. And we wanted to learn as much as we could about it. So we formed a Thomas Aquinas reading group, a Vatican II reading group, a Bible reading group. And then we decided to study Humanae Vitae because it was one of the most controversial um, teachings of the church. This was back in the, the early 70s and or late 70s. And um, in reading and studying Humanae Vitae with my friends, I became convinced that it was true. And at the same time, I was seeing friends of mine getting married. And it was very clear that those who were living by the church's teaching, remaining chaste before marriage, and uh, using natural family when they got married, had relationships of a very different and better quality um, than those who were contraception, contracepting. They were united in a a project together uh, to live their sexuality in terms of the church's teaching, which is not always easy, but they were intent upon it. And they, they learned um, sexual discipline and, and how to speak with each other about sex. And also they were open to children. 
uh, which just made them much more generous in every every way. A little bit forward, I got a job teaching at the University of Notre Dame, and um, I started doing some sidewalk counseling outside of an abortion clinic. And that's where it hit me like a ton of bricks that contraception was uh, on ramp to abortion. Mm. Uh, that these women were coming to the abortion clinic to get and young women getting abortions. I mean, what are they doing here? Why are they getting abortions? And I thought, because well, they're having sex with men that they don't have any intent to have a baby with. And so the, the pregnancy is a crisis and the baby play, pays the price. And I said, well, what makes them think it makes any kind of responsible sense at all to have sex with a man that you're not intending to have a baby with? And then it hit me that contraception had completely taken accountability or responsibility out of the sexual act. So these young women were having sex. Uh, I mean, I, I remember asking one of my friends in college who was sleeping with, with a very attractive man. And I, I said to her, but what happens if you get pregnant? And she said, I don't know him well enough to ask. And I just thought, oh, oh, I can't live in that world. I can't live in that world in which you're engaging in an act that might bring forth a new precious human baby who needs a mother and a father and all sorts of doting care and uh, financial security and all these things that babies prosper under. I said, I can't live in that world where that doesn't come up yeah. um, when you're pondering having sex with someone. So that was the initial connection that I made. I had this epiphany outside of an abortion clinic. And then I was teaching a course at, at Notre Dame in which I could introduce and teach some ethical issues. So I decided to use contraception. And I, I asked the students at the start, I said, how many of you um, accept the church's teaching on contraception? No hands went up. This was now in the early 80s. And then I'd say, how many of you... Um, have ever read Humanity? These are sophomores in college, so of course they haven't, but, and it was unfair in a way, but they would all say, no, I haven't. I said, how many of you thought about contraception for five minutes or longer and the morality of it? And none of them had. And I said, well, why don't we just read this document? And, and they're at a uh, Catholic college. Yeah, at, at Notre Dame, yeah. And uh, they were, a lot of them were convinced by it. And then I had to write a book to get tenure at Notre Dame, and I, I was really tired of my PhD dissertation. I didn't want to turn it into a book. And I had a friend who kept saying, you really love the issue of contraception, which I, I suppose in a way I did. It was so, I love controversy. And um, <laughs> so, so I mean, really, I had, had not a single course in theology in my life, um, no moral theology, never went to Catholic schools. And there I am writing a book on Humanae Vitae at Notre Dame. Um, I had a ball. Uh, you never went to Catholic schools, wow. The scholarship I knew nothing about, um, a whole issue I knew little about, and I just worked from morning till night, um, just just reading, writing, talking, and wrote this book. And then all of a sudden, I'm getting all these invitations to do talks on contraception, and so there's nobody out there else, nobody else out there doing it. Uh, so I started doing it. When are we and, talking now? What what year around? Now we're talking probably the late 1980s, early 1990s. Okay, okay. Well, more or less on the 25th year anniversary of Humanae Vitae. Got it. And um, I really enjoyed doing it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And trying to figure out the best way to lay out a presentation that it would be persuasive. What did people need to hear first? 
And if you remember the talk, I mean, I really don't get into the church's teaching until well into the second half of the talk. Uh, the first part of the talk is all about um, the, the sort of consequences of a contraceptive culture, what has happened to us since we've embraced contraception as being a standard part of sexual relationships and what that has done to the men and women who use contraception and what it's done to their children and families and in a sense to our whole culture. And then I segue at a certain point into saying, you know, that the the church has an understanding of human sexuality that is so profound and beautiful uh, and it's radically at odds um, with contraceptive sexuality. And that, I mean, when I first started teaching about oh, why premarital sex was wrong, which was sort of simultaneously with talking about contraception, when I go to high schools, that's what I often talk about. You know, when I first started, I was saying, you know, that the act of sexual intercourse is meant to be an expression of love and they'd all think that was right. They all would say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and of course they got mixed up. They basically thought, well, that means that if you love someone, it's okay to have sex with them. And I said, no, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying that, that you shouldn't be having sex unless you're in love with someone and you shouldn't be having sex unless you're prepared for babies and you're not prepared for babies until you're married. I said, it's a, it's a simple equation. But over the years, when I, when I would say to young people that, the sexual intercourse is meant to be an expression of love. They started looking and say, where'd you get that idea? Really? I thought it was just an act for physical pleasure. Two consenting individuals can engage in this. Um, and as long as we're using contraception, and they, they don't even really think about why they're using contraception, pretty much. They just do it, you know? And yeah. so it's like sex is just for pleasure. Contraception is a, a normal part of sex. And uh, it's completely diminished uh, the meaning and purpose of sexuality and the wonderfulness of male-female relationships. It's reduced it to a physical act as opposed to a profound commitment and gift of yourself uh, to another person that you've assessed in a way who would be a good lifetime partner and a good parent to your children. Night and day between saying, you know, I'm, I'm bored this weekend, I'm going to a party, I'm going to get drunk, and maybe there's someone there who will have sex with me. And saying, I'm only having sex with someone who I adore, basically, and I want to spend my lifetime with this person, and I want to raise a family with this person. That make, that That is truly honoring the sexual act. Yeah. And changes everything, as you can see. Can I just go back for a second? When um, you asked your students, hey, you know, let's read this document, let's read Humana Vitae, and then I believe you said it registered with all of them. So they hadn't even heard of it. You had them read it, and and the general consensus was that it really did register with with them and stirred something within them. A lot of them got it pretty quickly, but a lot of just it made them give gave them great pause. Yeah, it was no longer anything that they could dismiss. And um, you know, there I was on campus, and there was a just a young faculty member, and there was a, a friend of mine in the same department, very fine man, Catholic. Um, but the students ran off to him and said, you know, Professor Smith is teaching Humani Vitae and she supports it. And he just said, oh my gosh. He said, she, she seems like a, an intelligent woman. Why would she support Humani Vitae? And so the students say, debate, debate, let's have a debate. And so this colleague and I, two weeks later, we had a debate um, and I opened up the, my um, remarks by saying that very few Catholics had ever read the document. And though they feel perfectly comfortable 
living against it. I said, and so like, what kind of intellectual integrity and faith integrity is there in a, por in a person who knows that the church has a teaching on this and doesn't give it the time of day? And to his credit, he turned bright red. And he said, he actually said this, he said, I, my wife and I have been, I've been contracepting for at least 15 years. And he said, I had not read Humanae Vitae until this afternoon. Wow. Whoa, whoa. The oh. students just about fell off their chairs because they were they yeah. were so convinced that there we were all these people of great intellectual integrity and we would never take any position about anything unless we had done a deep dive into it and thought about it and you know especially if we're Catholic something that our our church teaches and they were shocked they were shocked at this and I said well that's that's the reality in which we live people are perfectly comfortable uh, living against church teaching now of course. Most people, and I would say this in my talks as well, most people know the church says that contraception is wrong, but most of all, they've heard, mostly they've heard it from the um, mainstream media that say something like, well, here's Pope Francis off in Africa. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly he's complete supporter, but, you know, he's, he's talking about the church's teaching on contraception, or certainly John Paul II never went anywhere without mentioning the church's teaching on contraception, but they didn't hear it from him. They heard it from the media that yeah. here he is an overpopulated Africa, Afri where Africans are falling over one after another, dying of AIDS, and he's against condoms and contraception. So they, they've, they've never heard it from the pulpit. They've never heard a good reason for it. And they're perfectly comfortable living, living in opposition to it. Well, you know, I, I, <clears throat> You, you bring up a really good point, but I, I realize that as an interviewer, I'm doing a, a bad job because we've been talking about Humana Vitae and been saying the words Humana Vitae for a while. And I'm realizing that there's probably people that listen to this show that don't even know what that, what that mm -hmm. is, uh, what Humana Vitae is. So could you just briefly explain what, yeah. what, or would, I would yeah. hope they would have put the pause button and did a little Google search. Oh, there you go. Time. Well, Hey, maybe they, you know, Hey, I'm begging people just to listen to this thing. So I don't know. They're sure they do, and they better not be doing that while they're driving. Exactly. So, um, yeah, Humanae Vitae is a, a lot, two Latin words that mean of human life. And the Catholic Church teaches many of its teachings through encyclicals, which actually means a, a letter that circulated. And so the church names, gives titles to its documents by using the first two Latin words of the document. So the first two Latin words of this particular encyclical are of human life. Uh, Humanae Vitae is the Latin for of human life. And the first line of Humanae Vitae, which is an encyclical that explains why the church teaches that contraception is not in accord with God's plan for sexuality. All right. Yeah. So the first line starts with um, the tremendous mission very, very important mission of transmitting human life that God has entrusted to spouses, he says, is something we need to consider. So it starts out by looking at, there's a very interesting Latin word there, it's munus, M-U-N-U-S, which means, it means a mission that God has, has asked spouses to do something. He's asked them to have babies. Why? Because he made the whole universe for babies, all right? For us, for souls, so that we can be with him for an eternity. And he wants spouses 
to bring new hum human life into the world so these souls can be with God for an eternity. So you want to choose a spouse that will be a good parent to the children you have together. And you're doing this job for God. The word munus, M-U-N-U-S, appears all over the place in the documents of Vatican II. And, you know, when we talk about Christ having the, um, uh, what, is, what do we say, the, the gift of, or office, what do we say, of being priest, prophet, and king? Threefold task? I don't forget what the word we use. Do you remember, Father Paul? Uh, what well, that is priest uh, priesthood is uh, he's a pre priest prophet and king, uh, but you know, I'm not sure what the task is. Well, the, word, the Latin word is munus. That that's what he's supposed to do. Christ is the priest prophet. Oh, teach, teach, govern, and sanctify. Yeah, those are the words. But no, but the the word munus, which means all sorts of things, gift, mission, office. I'm wondering what I the only word know. Is I only know pig Latin. I, I've forgotten. But anyway, the Pope has the munus of teaching infallibly. Priests have the munus of consecrating the sacraments. Mm. All right. Mary has the munus of being the mother of God. And spouses have the munus of transmitting human life. So it's basically the job that God wants you to do for salvation. Yeah. It's your job. And the job of spouses is to certainly to love one another, certainly to love one another and to go through life together, facing the challenges of life as one, to unite as one and go through the world as one, as, as talking about how do we do this and what are we going to do for this and how are we going to spend our money, how are we going to spend our time and how are we going to raise our kids, all right? And that's the most important thing you're going to do as a married person is love your spouse and take care of your, raise your children well. So that's how Humanae Vitae starts. So you're saying what, now God doesn't intend for us to have as many babies as we possibly can have. There's a limit to how many babies people can raise and raise well. Yeah, so it's not that the church is teaching that every, like you should have like 50 babies every time that you have sex, it, it absolutely has to lead to a, a child. And that's the interesting thing. A, a woman can get pregnant only in a short 12-hour period every month, right? Wow. So it, and so if, if God has, and women have very limited uh, fertility. We go through puberty and then we go through menopause. So we have about a 30-year window maybe, of fertility. Men are phenomenally fertile um, from the time they hit puberty until they die. They could populate, one man could populate all of China, but women have a very <laughs> limited, <laughs> women have a very limited fertility. And there's a reason for that, obviously, because we can only raise so many children well. And so you get pregnant and there's nine months of, of pregnancy. And then the bite, if a woman breastfeeds, that generally delays her fertility from coming back anywhere from six months to a year and a half. And so God naturally spaces children about two years apart, all right, um, year and a half to two years apart. And if you watch these couples that just let the babies come, you ask them how many children you have, they might say whatever they are in their journey, you know, oh, I have four children, what are their ages? Eight, six, four, and two, all right? And mm. it's always, it's basically two years apart. You have 10 kids, how many, 20, 18, 16, 14, 12, <laughs> okay? And that's, that's if the body is working just as the way it ought to work. It, we, in a fallen world, that's not the case. And not, obviously, not every couple can handle financially or psychologically that large of a family. Um, probably more than do it, uh, but not everyone can. And so the church says there's a, a perfectly moral way uh, to limit your family size. Uh, and that is what's used 
using what we call natural family planning. Yeah, NFP. Can, were you going to say something? No, I just said, yeah, NFP. NFP. Um, as I often say, people sometimes they say that means um, no faith in providence. Those who don't like um, limiting your family size at all. Others think no fun periodically. Others think <laughs> it means no, not for Protestants, okay? But it means that... <laughs> It means natural family planning, and Protestants do use it um, a lot. They've discovered it through the pro-life movement. Um, well, why is this okay and and contraception not? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, it treats the fertility with a great deal of respect. Um, contraception treats fertility as though it were a threat to your happiness, and so you have to um, if you want to be happy, you have to have sex and to have sex, it would be disastrous to have babies. So you're willing to do something quite damaging to your body in order to pursue a sexual life that's free of the possibility of children. Um, that's part of my talk is uh, the physical dangers uh, and the psychological dangers and the relationship dangers and environmental dangers. That, and that's some dangers. of my questions that I have too, because I don't think people realize some of the, the true physical dangers that, that there are. And yeah. Uh, I just listened to your whole talk today, so it's fresh in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 there's a marvelous website now called Natural Womanhood. And it's a marvelous website that's filled with information about um, how damaging contraceptives are to a woman's body. The way, a, the way that chemical contraceptives work is that, as, as I said, a woman is a relatively infertile creature. She, gets pre she can get pregnant. Only, uh, she ovulates only once a month. The egg lives in her body for only 24 hours and can be fertilized for only 12 hours. So a woman can only get pregnant 12 hours every month. And so you think, why would she be taking all these chemicals day after day, month after month, year after year, when there's only a 12-hour window? Well, it's a bit more complicated than that, all right? What happens is that a woman's body produces, a woman is born with all the eggs she's ever going to have, all right? And they're waiting in her ovaries for these hormones to appear that are going to give a signal to the fallopian tube to, or to the ovary to release the egg into the fallopian tube. That's amazing. Now, it's amazing. And the same hormones, um, uh, the, 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 the hormones that cause her to ovulate, uh, they're followed by hormones that prepare the uterus for a new baby. It gives a woman a nice, um, thick, bloody, endometrium in the, um, is that the right word? Yeah, the lining of the uterus. Exactly. It's a little late for me. Anyway, so that the, the new, so it's a place for the new little human being to implant and be nourished for the next nine months. All right. So there's a set of hormones that a woman, say at the beginning, let's say um, her, her, her cycle begins, let's say on the first day of the month. Her body is in a kind of dormancy at that point. And about 11 to 12 days later, it's resting. It's resting uh, from the whole cycle. The cycle is quite demanding on a woman's body. About 11 or 12 days later, the hormones start to appear that are going to ripen and release this egg from her ovary into the fallopian tube. Now, it isn't fully ripe until five days later, all right? At the same time that she's producing the hormones that make the egg ripen and release, she's producing a certain kind of mucus that helps carry the sperm to meet the egg. 
All right. So in order to get pregnant, a woman has to have an egg and there has to be a sperm and there has to be fertile mucus. And ultimately there has to be a uterus. Mm. All right. For this new little human being to live in. So her whole system has all these hormones that are being produced. And this is partly why I always tell men and women, something you will know once you've dealt with women long enough is that, you know, we don't know who we are in any given day. When, when we get up in the morning, we don't know whether we're the sweetest person on the face of the earth or a real shrew. All right. <laughs> and, and usually what, what reveals which what we are today to us is a conversation with some male for some reason. And it will show us if we're very sweet to him, where we are in our cycle. If he drives us crazy, it shows us where we are in our cycle. Um, it makes women, the, all these new hormones can make women very irritable. This, that's called the premenstrual syndrome, all right? Because a woman has one set of hormones and then very quickly she has a whole new set of hormones that just wallop her body. And this is before right? conception? This is before conception. Okay. And so women usually have uh, uh, symptoms, those who suffer from premenstrual syndrome, right before they ovulate and then right before uh, their period starts. Okay. And because again, that's another huge hormonal shift. A woman has several, at least two huge hormonal shifts every month. One is having this complete dormancy where she cannot possibly get pregnant because there's no egg there in her body to get pregnant. So if she had sexual intercourse from the first day her cycle begins until she starts to ovulate, she cannot possibly get pregnant because there's no egg there. For the next five days, she could get pregnant, but not on those days. Because the, if, if a, let's say she has sexual intercourse on day 12, and that's when she's starting to produce this fertile mucus, this fertile mucus will then keep the sperm alive can keep a sperm alive for up to five days. So if she gets, if she has starts her process of releasing an, an egg on day 11 and she has sexual intercourse on day 16, she might get pregnant from that sexual intercourse she had on day 11, right? Okay. Because she's been producing that whole time a fertile mucus that helps keep the sperm alive, right? The egg lives in her body, as I said, for 24 hours, can be fertilized for only 12 of those. So if that egg, and on that day, she has about a 43 to 45% chance of getting pregnant. It's not 100%. If she has, if she has sexual intercourse on that day, on day 16 um, of her cycle, if she's working, if it's working perfectly, um, she only has about a 45% chance of getting pregnant. About two days later, that egg, if it, she doesn't get pregnant, basically dies. It dies. All right. So that's seven days that she could get pregnant. She could, well, she can't get pregnant those two days after it dies, but that's when you know there's no, there's no um, egg remaining in her body. So she had sexual intercourse from day, what am I doing here? 19 to the end of her cycle, which is usually 28 days. She cannot possibly get pregnant during those days. So she cannot possibly get pregnant from day one to day 11 or 12 and cannot possibly get pregnant from day 19 to 28 because there's no egg there to fertilize, all right? The only time she can get pregnant is from day 11 or 12 to day 17. Now, it doesn't have that hard. Now, I know people are taking notes. Whoa, this is crazy. This is wonderful. And it is. It's crazy and it's wonderful. There's a problem there uh, that most women don't have 
um, absolutely regular cycles. All right. So instead of starting her um, ovulatory process, it might start on day nine instead of day 11 or 12. It might start on day 13 or 14. All right. And so that pushes everything back by that many days. She might have an extended period of production of mucus. So it might start on day nine, but not end till much longer because her, because of the hormones that are in her body, uh, because of the fall, we don't have a perfect system. All right. And so women have to learn if they can learn out by bodily signs, she can largely by the presence of mucus in her system by, and by a temperature rise after the egg dies that where she is in her cycle, whether she's, she can say, okay, I'm my fertile mucus is here. If we don't want to have a baby, we can't have sex until the egg dies. And when it dies, my temperature goes up and the mucus dries up. So a woman learns how to observe that in her body. All right. So it means for most couples, there's going to be somewhere between a set seven to maybe 10, 11 day period of abstinence. Now there's 28 days in the cycle. So that means there's 18 days when they can have sexual intercourse with absolutely no expectation of uh, a pregnancy. So this is, I mean, it's in our, in our culture that is so interested in ecology and the environment and doing things the natural way, eating organic foods and not wanting to put this poison in our system. God made the body this way, right? And there's, it, it, it works very well. And so it means that the whole time you're not treating your fertility as though it were a threat. You're working with it. So God says, he basically says to married couples, you can have sex all month long, basically as much as you want, right? But if you have sex during the fertile period, you need to leave that open to me for the possibility that I will create a new human life. Let me make, amend a statement I made earlier. In order for a new baby to be conceived, you not only have to have an egg and fertile mucus and a sperm, actually God has to be present because only God can create an immortal soul, all right? So there's not an immortal soul in the egg and there's not an immortal soul in the sperm. So where does the immortal soul come from? Mm. It comes from God. So when the sperm penetrates the egg, that's an invitation to God to create a new human soul, all right? So this is where he has said spouses, I want you to love each other. Sex is a great way for you to just really enjoy each other and build trust and vulnerability and relationship and communication. But if you have sexual intercourse during this fertile time, that's like you're having a party that I want to attend. I'm there at the rest of it. Maybe I'm sort of hanging out in the corner. But during the fertile time, if you have sex during that time, I may be a part of this process where the sperm and the egg, when they meet a new human soul, is created. And so they're not just preventing the sperm from meeting the egg when they're using contraception. Let me just say, they're, they're shutting God out of this sexual act. Okay. Okay. Why is that? Because only he can, only he can create a new human soul. So if you prevent the egg from, from meeting the sperm, you're saying to God, we're shutting you out of this. We're not going to let you in here. It's like, we invite you to the door because having sex is like, it's sending an invitation to a party. God, we're having a party. You gave us sex. Um, 
you know, you could create a new human life, but you come to the door, we slam it in your face. We don't want you here. And that's what contraception does. Now, I started this by trying to explain what it does to a woman's body. And um, that's what, how the whole thing started. That's why you got into yeah. it. Well, what the chemical contraceptives do to a woman's body is it puts it in a state of, of permanent pregnancy, all right? Pseudo, pseudo permanent pregnancy, or at least as long as she's on the pill, um, because it suppresses those hormones that help the egg ripen and release and the hormones that create the fertile mucus. So she's putting a chemical in her body that puts it into an entirely unnatural state. Women have many states of their body. They have a pre-puberty body. They have a post-puberty body. Within their, their time of fertility, they have two periods of the month where they're completely infertile, another period of the month where only partially infertile, except for those 12 hours, okay? So a woman has a, a body that webs, ebbs and flows um, with fertility. And um, what women are doing when they use contraceptives, they say, I want to thwart that fertility. And it really is so important to who women are. And we're treating it as though it were some sort of negative thing. And almost like we'd, more be, we'd like to be more like males than females, can, because males can have sex and not get pregnant. Women can't, well, we don't always get pregnant. We rarely get pregnant when we have sexual intercourse, but it's a possibility. And so we're saying we're willing to negate that possibility so that we can engage in sex, as opposed to saying, no, this is, there must be something healthy about this because this is the way that God made me. Yeah, right? like if, if I get pregnant, something, something went right. <laughs> it didn't go wrong. Something right, instead of something went wrong. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> and uh, and instead of saying, we're going to live in accord with the rhythms of my body, we say, I'm willing to do all this damage to my body. I remember one priest I heard say that when he talked to couples uh, preparing for marriage, he would um, he would say, have you ever read of the insert on the pill? And they'd say, no. So let me read it for you here. And then there's like 35 bad side effects of the contraceptive pill. All right. Yeah. Migraine headaches. All right depression, gaining weight, irritability, right? Let alone greater incidence of cancer and heart uh, problems, right? The, the migraines, the depression, the weight gain, the irritability are common side effects, common side effects. And I always say to women, I, you know, I suppose most of us wanna be more irritable, gain weight, all right, be depressed and get migraine headaches. I said, I, I, have a, I have something for you. It's called the contraceptive pill. And every man I know is want the woman that he's, he's dealing with to be more irritable, more depressed, to gain weight, et cetera. Um, and you say, it doesn't make any sense. Women are taking a pill that makes them si sicker. And that makes sense because if you're suppressing a natural um, production of your body, which is these hormones, you would expect them, expect there to be problems. This is a natural state that you're in. And the natural state is very important. This always fascinates people. This, this research it sort of came to public attention in the late 1990s about how, you know, we talk about men and women being, having a powerful chemical attraction, you know, that the chemistry is really wild between those two people. And, you know, that's pretty darn true. And it is chemistry. Um, men and women... Uh, exude, if you will, uh, pheromones, which are sexual hormones, right? 
that don't have any smell. You can't, you can't, they don't have an, a scent. Let's put it where they don't have a scent, but they are perceived through our olfactory nerves, right? And um, men and women, those who, the chemical attraction, women are, are you know, like most of, I mean, if, you know, if we can, re, I can hardly remember, but, you know, back at the age when you're young and there's a group of handsome men come in the room, you're not equally attracted to all of them before you even hear a word out of their mouths. You know, there's some of them you go, whoa, what just showed up here? Yeah, that, right? that never happened for me when I walked in. Yeah, I'm sure it never did. Right. It's a universal phenomenon. But then you might hear out, you know, hear them cackle or laugh or you find out their politics and the complete attraction disappears because it was based simply on a chemical thing and human beings are- No, but that's chemical. interesting. Can you get back to that? So just based, somebody walks in the room, you're telling me it's not just the way they look, but that there's something, there's a chemical reaction? Oh yeah, they, they actually have these fascinating um, experiments. They're called the t-shirt test where they, yes. they have these- yeah, they have these men wear a t-shirt for a day. Now, the women have never met them. There's two groups of women, one contracepting and the other not contracepting. And the men wear a t-shirt for the day. The women never meet the men. At the end of the day, they smell their t-shirts. The, um, and, and there's, uh, women are attracted to a certain kind of man more than often than not. Who means he's, you know, somewhat um, forceful, a little bit aggressive, uh, self-confident, um, you know, exudes a kind of presence, all right, and probably is ambitious. And so women can perceive this through the hormones. So she smells that, the hormones, the t-shirt, she said, I, I think I'd be interested in dating this guy. The other one is not at all interested. And these tend to be the guys that are kind of the couch potato types. They just don't have any um, hormonal activity that forces them off the couch. Really? Right? And, and so... Um, and there's some evidence that women are more attracted to men that they are more likely to be to conceive a child with their fertility matches. All right. And that with another man, uh, she might not have that same, she might not be as fertile because there's not the same chemical match um, between them. I mean, it's kind of it, when women first have sexual intercourse with a man, often she treats his semen as though it were an allergen, something that is new to her system and she fights it off. Over a period of time, she becomes accustomed to it. It gets, it's, it's, it's no longer a threat okay. um, to her system. Th this might be one of the reasons that women rarely get pregnant through rape. Because really? it's a one-time thing. And she rejects his semen um, and it, from invading her system. It's a fascinating thing that got a little protective mechanism that God has. So has it happens, but it's rare. Oh, it happens, but it's very rare. Very rare. First of all, he has to, he has to, he has to uh, rape her during that fertile time of the month, which is only one third of the month, right? And then again, her body generally sets up a, a rejection of it. She's not having all the mucus that she would normally produce that would bring the sperm to meet the egg. So there's all sorts of reasons why it's rare for a woman to get pregnant through rape. It and, happens for and, sure. And that's one of the main arguments that people like talk about abortion. Well, what about in cases of rape? Constantly, that's like a huge thing. And, and yet, although it's, it's horrendous and, and disgusting and terrible and it does happen, uh, that violent act, um, the, the percentage, and believe me, it shouldn't be one, but it's very, very low, you know, uh, compared to the amount of pregnancies that are happening and the amount of abortions that yeah, are happening. It, 
it's a neg- it, it truly is negligible. But more importantly, people don't understand that the whole psychology of that. When I used to do sidewalk counseling, I, I ran into maybe two or three women who, who said that they were pregnant through rape. And um, I would ask them, well, do you, do, do you really want this abortion? And they would just stop. And they, it kind of hit them because everybody assumed they wanted an abortion. Oh, I got raped. Of course, I'm going to get an abortion. I said, well, do you really want this abortion? And they said, well, everybody thinks I should have one. They think I'd be stupid if I didn't get an abortion, that I shouldn't bear the child of a man who raped me. And I said, has this child done you any harm? And they said, no. And I said, well, do you realize, you know, I'm sorry you went through the rape and it's horrible and you know, give as much sympathy as, as I, I possibly could. I said, but you know, what is happening here is if you get an abortion, you're continuing the violence, all right? There was violence done against you and now there's gonna be violence done to your baby. Yeah, It is your baby too. I said, the only person on the face of this earth that can save this baby's life right now is you. And some of these women would say, I'm not having the abortion. Two, the two that I talked to left. Wow. Because, because they, they weren't getting any support from it. They actually felt they'd be foolish, stupid, if they didn't get the abortion. And I mean, you know, it's just an amazing thing that you uh, underestimate, really underestimate both a woman's and a man's heart, both of them, that a woman has a natural love for her own child. And even if this child is a result of rape, she knows there's a helpless, dependent, vulnerable little human being who is not responsible uh, for having been conceived. Sure, yeah. Uh, You know, and that really, I can't tell you how many men I know that don't have any, you know, really no any trouble marrying women who are are pregnant through rape, or of course women who have had children by other men. They have space in their heart for these children. They have space. Yeah. They realize that, that this this is a baby that needs a father, and I can be a good father to that child. Yeah, I mean, two wrongs don't make a right, and you can't fight off evil with another evil. You know, it's just. Uh... And we never know what God could do and trust in the, the providence of God. I mean, I've look, I've never been in a situation like that in my life in any which way, shape, or form, but I do know of women who, you know, um, have had, let's just say, unexpected pregnancies in one way, form, or another. And, you know, although, you know, tough and, and um, even traumatic in the beginning, finding out that they're pregnant, decided to, you know, surrender to the Lord and to, tr- that, that, to put everything and their baby and their life into his care and you know, um, tremendous things have happened and they're so absolutely grateful for that, for that baby right now. Um, and, and for that child. So God bless you for, for, for saying that to those two different women and putting that idea in that head that that should just go to show to all the listeners out there that you you can make a difference in, in somebody's life. Literally the difference between, between life and death is just asking a, a question and sometimes that's what Jesus would do is that he would ask, he would answer a question with asking another question and the asking of that question would, would change a life. Would, would... The, the beautiful, one of the beautiful things about Christianity is it, it really has a beautiful understanding of human nature. So we know what's in people's hearts. You know, we, we may think there's hate and there's going to be hate in these people's hearts, but we know there's not. We know that God made men and women to naturally love their own offspring to the point where they really are willing to die for them. You know, I, I had the, the great gift of being present um, in the delivery room when one of my children, one of my friends had her um, sixth, sixth child out of eventually nine. And um, 
the whole atmosphere of the room changed when that baby arrived. There was just this almost a sacred feeling in the room, like there's a new little human being here who is so precious and again, so vulnerable and dependent. We are the adults. We need to make certain that this world is right for this child. But even more so, you could feel, and again, in the heart of the father, he's never met this child, right? Never seen this child. They have no relationship pretty much to this moment. But in his heart, he sort of says, anybody tries to do anything, this child, I'm going to kill him. Mm. Where's that come from? Like within two seconds, his whole life is now protectively yeah. em embracing this child. And almost if I needed to die in order to save this infant's life, I would. Isn't that what amazing? Is it's, it's an astonishing thing. Um, you know, women will tell you that up until the time that they gave birth, they were only interested in their own looks and fashion and attracting men, etc. They have this baby and not this doesn't happen to every woman. There's postpartum depression. There's all sorts of things that can impede what should be a natural process. But God made it to be this way. And it's not always this way because life is complicated. We live in a fallen world. But it's not uncommon for a woman who has a baby to say, nothing else in my life has mattered as much as this. I mean, you hear starlets, you know, celebrities, movie stars say, you know, my whole life, all I wanted to be was a movie star and get an Academy Award in this. And I did that. Then I got married and have a baby. And that's the most important thing I've ever done. It's more valuable than anything else I've ever done. And that's how God has made the human heart. So why is it that people are treating, again, pregnancy as though it were some sort of a boogie bear? Well, that, that's my question to you. And if you yeah. don't mind, I don't know how much time you could hang out, but I'm, I'm yeah. really enjoying this. And Sure. And I have I have some questions. I'm sorry, I, could, I didn't hear you. A little longer, sure. Maybe, maybe 20 minutes or so. Okay. So, well, you just let me know. Like, so why why this crazy? I mean, I have so many questions, and we I don't even think we got to the root of this yet. Like, first of all, where did this whole concept of contraception come from? Like, why why did it? I, I mean, I don't know if it's been around for thousands of years or whatever, but why is it this insane, crazy, yeah, yeah. spread out thing right now? especially with knowing what, so you're one person that knows about the biology of a woman. We have people that have gone to Ivy league universities and everything that, uh, you know, everything's contraception, contraception, abortion, abortion. And yet, I mean, did they not study biology themselves? Uh, no, they know nothing. They so. know nothing. It's all news to them. And again, it's not their fault. Nobody's teaching them. Right? I'm not going to blame. I'm not gonna, I blame my generation if any generation, because we're the ones that embraced contraception wholesale, but I mean, in the history of mankind, uh, you know, women have known how to space their children. They do in Africa. And in Africa, before contraception and um, formula came in, the average spacing for baby was not two years. It was three to four years because the, the woman would carry the baby with her all the time in a sling. And she would nurse that baby morning, noon, and night. And it's it's the suckling of the breast that causes a woman or hormones that would cause her to uh, that suppress the hormones that would lead to ovulation. All right. So if a woman is exclusively breastfeeding a baby, giving him no food, her no food, um, her fertility, can, infertility can last a very long time. All right. Women knew this. They observed this. They figured it out. All right. But with 
something like penicillin, people started living, I mean, most women would lose a couple babies because of miscarriages, et cetera, lack of hygiene, lack of penicillin. So people had very short lifespans and a lot of them had to do with the, the average short lifespan was because of a lot of babies dying in the first few years of, of life from, you know, any little germ. Um, so anyway, we, we invented penicillin and that really did an amazing thing and antibiotics for keeping people alive. So people starting to get a sense that there's too many people, all right? Um, Malthus, um, uh, Paul Ehrlich, et cetera, huge predictions of an overpopulated world. And what decade are we talking now? Pardon me? What decade are we talking? Malthus was in the 19th century. Okay. Um, Ehrlich in the 20th century. All right, but Malthus had the prediction that we would just keep exponentially um, reproducing, and before long we'd be falling off the globe. And he had he had evidently no understanding of human beings in a way, it, or agriculture. I mean, we make every virtually every decade we have more food per capita than we had the decade before because of increased agricultural abilities. Right? We're obviously we're suffering from obesity, not from a lack of food. And so um, we had, had no faith that human beings could sort of address the challenges of life. Um, so there was the sense that there were too many people living too long, and before long the work would be the world would be terribly overpopulated. And there was a um, you know a reduction of the of religion. It was the turn of the century. You're starting to feel a little bit of turned down because of the enlightenment and everything that people think that we're God and God is not God. And we can, we, if we're just smart enough, we can overcome all the physical challenges of life. We are the masters of matter. We can do whatever we want to. And the idea that we should respect the body or the environment, um, do what is natural, it was out the window. It was power, um, Knowledge is power, and power means we control the world. We make it ours, all right? And so they started looking for, and of course, there were some people with true compassion and true sympathy, um, thinking that there were in impoverished countries, women were having too many children, they were exhausted and uh, couldn't feed them, and life was miserable. In some places, it was. Um, one of the ironies of that and the sad things about that was the one of the men who invented the contraceptive pill was a man named John Locke, Dr. John Locke, who was a Catholic. And um, he, you know, I don't know his soul, but, um, you know, he claimed to be very concerned about the poor. But where he started testing the contraceptive pills was in Puerto Rico, because most of the women were Catholic and they were poor and they were illiterate. And honestly, they couldn't sue if damage was done to them. Most of the testing on contraceptions happened, contraceptives happen in third world countries because they can't sue. And um, we all have our suspicions of big pharma, I think these days. Yeah. But anyway, um, when they started testing the contraceptive pill in Puerto Rico, three women died from the pill. Again, largely strokes and heart attacks. And um, they just readjusted the dosage of the pill but when they first tried to get permission for the pill, women, women absolutely um, flooded Congress and said, we don't want it. This hasn't been tested. These are strange chemicals we're putting in our body. What are you doing to us? But of course, 
people who want the big money that drugs can have pushed, pushed it all through, even the contraceptive pill. So that the, the availability of the pill started in about the late 1950s. And that's precisely when Paul Ehrlich was pushing his view that before long, we'd all be killing each other for food. Um, and when feminism uh, was starting to begin to say that, uh, you know, women couldn't be happy unless we had the same success in the world of work as men do, and that children are just an impediment uh, to our happiness. And we absolutely need the pill in order to be happy. And then, of course, in the church, it was Vatican II, uh, and some of the things that were dropped, like even like fasting on Fridays for meat, people were thinking, oh, everything's going to change. Contraception's going to change. We just wait around before long, things will change. So this is an atmosphere that things are just changing, changing, changing. And um, the pill became ooh, extremely popular, just right out of the door. Is it true that every Christian denomination was completely against the pill until the uh, Lambert Lutheran Conference in 1930-something? Yeah, 1930 Lambert Conference was that all Christian churches were opposed to contraception. Um, they thought it, it, that what happened, they thought what 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 did happen would happen uh, with contraception, that men would come to disrespect women, that um, uh, sex outside of marriage would increase, uh, that there would be, um, men would think, men and women think they had absolute control over their body to do anything they wanted to with. They didn't foresee, um, say, the approval of homosexuality or the approval of transgenderism, which I think are very clearly... Uh, a result of treating your body as if you can make it be whatever you want it to be yeah and accepting your body for um for what it is so the, all the churches were again against they the bot the god of scripture is clearly a god that loves life and abundance all right the first commandments that gave god gave mankind were two you know it's good not good to be alone um cling to your, the two must become one, right? Number one, it's not good to be alone. Put yourself in a relationship with other people, especially marriage. Not everybody's going to marry, but according to the celibate life is a kind of marriage. The consecrated life is a kind of marriage. The church understands all of life as marriage and procreativity. No matter if you're following Christ, you are married in some respect. Um, but when they have, actually have a real a, a physical marriage, male and female, what did God say? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what did he say to Abraham? Your descendants will be like the, sand, the stars in the sky and yeah. the sand on the seashore. All right. So are we saying that God didn't plan well? He didn't know that there, there might be food shortages and this, that, and the other thing? I don't think so. I think the same God that multiplied loaves and fishes um, can help us out with whatever we're, whatever our challenges are. Um, and so, I mean, the most blessed people in scripture were those who were incredibly fertile and infertility was a curse. Now, I'm not saying that women who are infertile are cursed. They have a physical malady, but most women who are infertile experience it as a tremendous cross, right? that it's something their heart deeply desires is to be a mother. And they feel that they've been denied. And many men do too. 
Many men who find out that there's infertility in the relationship they have with a woman, maybe it's her, she's the source of it, her, his body is, or the two together, whatever, it's heartbreaking because it's a part of the relationship they're in is directed towards having children. Now, I, I know several married couples who have no children and, and they, they are so um, pro-life in a sense that they're taking care of everybody all the time. I mean, they are just wonderful. They adopt people. They, they help out with organizations. You can just see that they're other directed. They didn't let their lack of fertility stop them from being people who are other directed and giving to others. So God is a God that loves babies. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, all right. So we're, you know, we're getting up there after the 1930s and then, you know, start people are starting to wonder like, yeah, wow, it's really popular. Is, is everything going to, is the Catholic church going to change? And then bam, 1968, Pope Paul VI drops what some would call a bombshell, uh, the encyclical Humana Vitae on human life or of human life, which many think people just say, oh, that's the contraception encyclical. And he did not change church teaching. And many were surprised by that. And some still are. And it's caused a tremendous controversy. And that's a whole other episode in and of itself. But um, why did he write it then? And uh, I guess for the sake of the, the, the rest of the time that we have, he was a prophet about a couple of things that he said in, in there um, about that. So can you, can you speak to that for, for a moment? Well, yes. The, I mean, uh, the, the question of contraception came up at the Second Vatican Council. And uh, the, the church fathers decided they didn't want to deal with directly with the question because it was huge. Um, there was this Ehrlich sense that the world was overpopulated. There was um, uh, women having so many children. The fertility rate was very high. Uh, and um, so, and the pill was now available. So people were trying to go, okay, what are we, is, how is the church going to teach its teaching in the modern world? We, we're facing a new reality. We have to find a way to speak to modern people. <clears throat> Again, in, in the history of mankind, people wanted to have lots of babies. They want to have lots of babies to work on the farm and to um, take care of them in their old age. And children were considered to be a sign of wealth because they were wealth in themselves. All right. Um, but with industrialization, et cetera, it seemed like uh, life got more expensive to live and it, it was too expensive to raise a lot of children. So and the pill seemed just a godsend. It was just going to be great. So um Originally, Pope John XXIII uh, set up a small commission of six priests to look into the question of contraception. And when Pope Paul VI became the Pope, he put some 66 people on the on the commission to, on a commission to look into whether contraception, how to teach the teaching in the modern world. That was the question that they were asked to approach. And he put on it a lot of lay people, which was the first time in the history of the church that a commission um, had more lay people on it than it had priests, married people, demographers, sociologists, doctors, et cetera. And somewhere in the course, early in the course of that commission, um, and it seems to have been a, a Father Bernard Herring, who was a very famous moral theologian, raised the question, said the, council, the commission should ask the question, can the church change its teaching on contraception and should it change its teaching on contraception? And this is at the time when dissent 
from the church started uh, was starting up uh, dissent from church teaching and proportionalism it was called um, <clears throat> and so um, before long the commission decided took a vote and decided that the church could change its teaching and should change its teaching and they put together these documents which they sent to Paul VI it's very interesting Carol Wojtyla who eventually became John Paul II was a member of that commission he was never allowed out of Poland to come to the meetings, but he got the documents and he wrote a very strong defense of what had always been the church's teaching. In fact, he had already written one in a very famous book. It's still unbelievably wonderful, Love and Responsibility, Oh yeah, which, which was written to defend the church's teaching um, on sexuality, particularly contraception. So Paul VI gets these documents and the commission really never completed it work, its work. We had reports from different factions on the on the commission though overwhelmingly they said the church could and should change its teaching and he prayed over it he he read john paul ii's documents he read some other documents and he decided uh the church couldn't change its teaching and shouldn't change its teaching and he issued humani vitae well <clears throat> as you said it, it dropped like a bomb on the whole world uh, the church was thinking, oh man, the world was thinking the church is going to enter the modern world. It's going to accept contraception. And the church said, no, this is simply not in accord with God's plan for sexuality. And uh, most Catholics then and most Catholics now contracept. In, uh, in 1960, something like 66% of Catholics had never used a contraception. Contraceptive. There weren't many to be used at that point. It was largely the condom and the diaphragm, but Catholics did not contracept. And by the by, 1968, 1970, early 70s, you're up to 85% of Catholics contracepting. It just completely, and that completely changed in that. You look at the, the charts, I mean, people say it's correlation and not causation. I say, think of, stop for a minute and think about it, but the amount of premarital sex, I mean, as you as a priest know, something like 90%. Of couples have sex before marriage, maybe much, maybe closer to 98. All right. Um, 85% cohabit before marriage, somewhere between 65 and 85%. Why do they do this? Because they think contraception makes it make sense. We can test out the relationship before we get married. Um, and you really can't. Marriage is something totally different from cohabitation. Uh, and, and people who cohabit have a much higher divorce rate. So yeah. you look at the fornication rate, you look at the divorce rate since contraception became widely available. You look at the abortion rate since contraception became widely available. It just tracks right together. The availability of, of contraception and the amount of cohabitation, promiscuity, divorce and abortion line right up with the availability of contraception. It radically changed the culture. It, it, it made single womanhood, motherhood, something that was sort of a norm. It let men off the hook from being responsible for their sexuality and made men lonely and miserable. Um, promiscuity does not make men happy. Uh, they don't know that until they've messed around for a while. And yeah. then they sort of think, wait a second, I thought I was going to be happy and really I'm miserable. Uh, exactly. It's faithful marriages and they're hard to come by. They take a lot of work. But the church's teaching on, on, on sexuality is really what helps people have precisely what they most want is a lifetime loving relationship and relationships with their families and their children. 
So we've been trying to put that genie back in the bottle for a long time. Um, John Paul II did a beautiful job. Uh, the love and responsibility that wrote before the, he was Holy Father's outstanding philosophical defense of the church's teaching on contraception. And the theology of the body is a mind-blowing, wonderful defense of the church's teaching from a theological perspective. We have natural family planning. Um, we've got the whole package. Is it true uh, that John Paul II wrote the theology of the body specifically to be a commentary on Humanae Vitae? Yes. The last third of it is all about Humanae Vitae. <clears throat> it's, it builds up to the crescendo yeah. of, of Humanae Vitae. It's uh, absolutely fascinating. I mean, there's just, there's too many gems to talk about. There's, there's so much to get into. There's so much that we have talked about. There's so much that, that, that still has not yet to be talked about. But uh, I, I do want to respect your time. Um, well, we can do it again someday. Well, I would, I would love to because there's many questions I, w I want to get to. So if you're willing to come back for a part two, that would be amazing. And a couple other people gave me questions too. But if I could just uh, ask you this now to end off here, if somebody walks up to you on the street and says, um, Dr. Smith, why not? Contraception, why not? And you just had that moment with them. What would you say? I, I, to some extent, I want to say, think of the difference between having sex with someone with whom you're contracepting and having sex with someone with whom you're not contracepting. All right? When you're contracepting, it's so-called safe. All right, You're not making any commitment. Either you or he can walk away first thing in the morning. Men feel as, maybe as acutely as women. Now, if you have sex without a contraceptive, what, what does that mean? There might be a baby here. Now, all of a sudden, sex is kind of really, it's not safe anymore. It's actually scary because now there might be a baby. And what does that mean? Well, if I have any responsibility, I have to take care of that baby. Well, I could kill it through an abortion, but I don't want to do that. I could give it up for adoption, but, you know, it's my baby. All right. I can become a single mother, but my child needs a father. Right. So I want to say, um, <laughs> make it sound like I'm making an argument for contraception. I want to say, but I want to say the whole experience of sex is fantastically different. One is it's just a momentary physical pleasure. And the other is saying, again, I love you so much. I'm willing to have non-contraceptive sex with you because I want to spend my life with you. I want to help bring someone just like you into the world, someone with your laugh and your eyes and your walk. I think you'd make a great father to our children. I think you'd make a great mother to our children. So that's what God means sex to mean. It, as, as he says, it speaks a language. Contraceptive sex has its own language. It means I find you attractive. I want to have a momentary pleasure with you. I don't much care what happens after that. All right? yeah. Having non-contraceptive sex means if you have any responsibility at all in your system means I'm willing to be a parent with you. And if I'm willing to be a parent with you, it means I love you beyond all others. And I want to have a lifetime relationship with you. So it means something entirely different. One is holding back, not giving of yourself fully, just giving of your body. The other is an act of complete self-giving. 
And I mean, I think, I mean, that notion that marriage is, is this act of complete self-giving, meaning what? I am putting my life in your hands, all right? My happiness in your hands. Well, I'm going to be happy from this day out depends a lot upon you, okay? And me and you together. What an act of trust and faith in another human being, you know? And it, what an act of love. I'm willing to risk it. I'm willing to risk that it might not work. But it, it's so promising to me, I want to, and I'm going to give everything in me. I'm going to give everything in me to make certain that this works. What a beautiful thing uh, to say. And that's what non-contraceptive sex says to another person. Yeah. Which is, some would say that's a, another word for marital love, the marital act. Right. Which yep. is a whole other thing because I, I almost want to start getting into, and hey, just because you're married doesn't mean contraception's okay. Um, but uh, but that, that's a story for another day. And, and we, we got into that into when I interviewed Christopher West. So go back and listen to those interviews uh, that I did with Christopher West and then now with Dr. Janet Smith. And then we'll have a, another one in the future, part two. A matter of fact, I want to do an entire episode on love and responsibility because people need to know about that book oh, and that teaching. That book. Yeah, absolutely. I always wanted to take your... That's the course that... I signed up once to take of yours at the Theology of the Body, uh, uh, but then I think for some reason you weren't able to do it. Maybe you were taking care of your mother, and I they, they ended up getting another professor, so I never got to take it with you. I, I, I think I took it with Dr. Angela Franks. Yes, uh, I think there was a time, and I don't remember what, and she did step in for me. Yes, yeah, it, it, yeah, it was a, you were originally supposed to do it, and then she did it. Um, so, uh, but anyway, but here, hey, here I am now uh, talking to you on yeah, my podcast. Great. So, who would have thought? And um, I, I'm very blessed, and I, I, I thank you very much. And uh, where could I? Where could we? Uh, what resources can we give to listeners? What What can you plug Again, right now? There's you know, my my website, JanetSmith.org, has you can download it for free. That Natural Womanhood um, website is fantastic. There's various um, you know, NFP organizations, the Couple to Couple League. Um, there's others. It'd be a shame if I didn't mention them, but right now they're they're not in my head. Um, hey, it's late. No problem. Pardon me? I said it's late. No worries. Yeah. No, there's uh, Mercedes Wilson Family of the Americas, a really wonderful organization. Uh, and I, I think people start to see that more and more women, even who aren't the least bit religious, are beginning to find that contraception is is not a healthy thing in every respect, physically, psychologically, and spiritually. Yeah. And you really get into that. And I want to say to the listeners right now, please, 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 when you're done listening to this, listen to Dr. Smith's talk. You can find that on YouTube uh, or at janetsmith.com or .org. Uh, I'll put the, the link in my show. Her talk, Contraception, Why Not? Absolutely amazing and many different reasons. She doesn't even get into the church teaching until the end. And I, I, first of all, I really, I want them to hear the story about the monkeys because to me, that's like absolutely fascinating. <laughs> fascinating. I, everybody needs to hear that. So go, go listen. But also she talks about the real serious physical side effects uh, and dangers of, uh, of not only the pill, but the patch, 
I don't even know what out what else is out now. I know we didn't get into the whole condom thing. So look, there's so much. There's so much more. There's so much more. I mean, look, it took John Paul II five years to get to give a commentary on Humana Vitae. We're not going to do it in an hour and fifteen minutes. Uh, but I thank you for your time. Uh, may God bless you. And thank you for being uh, now. Uh, you're my first ever second guest to a holy mess. So thank you for saying yes to this. And uh, I'm going to officially end the recording here, and then I'll say goodbye to you in just a second. Well, thank you, and thank you for your preparation and your enthusiasm. It's just, it's just wonderful. We need to have priests who want to get this truth out there, and it's just wonderful that that you're you're dedicated to this and many other truths. So uh, I really appreciate it. Well, pray for me, please pray for me, and pray for all oh, my yeah. brother priests. And uh, thank you for everything. And you were involved in the formation of priests for what twenty years? Yes, at Sacred Heart yes. Seminary in Detroit. You guys are a challenge. <laughs> Sent me into early retirement. Oh, really? What, what's that so, thing yeah. that you say in your email uh, about retirement? Tired, but re something like that? Tired and, re tired and retired. Yeah. But, but mostly recycled. But mostly recycled. All right, <laughs> let, me, let me end this here. All right, folks, listen, thanks for listening. What do you mean, folks? What am I, uh, what am I, uh, like, uh, this is like a professional podcast now? No, you guys, you're, you're messes, you're holy messes. All right, messes, thanks for listening uh, to this interview with Dr. Janet Smith. I'm going to have to have her come back again because there's so much stuff that we didn't even get into because this is a complicated issue. There's so much to it. There's so much to the contraception question. Check out her talk, Contraception, Why Not? Check it out right now. Listen to it or watch it on YouTube while you're folding some laundry or um, driving in the car. Check it out. Also, uh, do me a favor. Share this episode. Share this podcast. Let's get the word out there if you don't mind. Say a prayer for it. Um, also email me if you have any questions at his holy mess podcast at gmail.com his holy mess podcast at gmail.com for questions, requests, bookings, etc. If you want to prayerfully consider, uh, making a small donation, uh, you could, uh, donate at paypal.me slash a holy mess podcast. Again, that's paypal.me slash a holy mess podcast. You could also find me on Venmo at, uh, at his holy mess, at his holy mess for a holy mess podcast. Uh, so thank you once again. Again, uh, we're gonna have. I don't know who's gonna be my next guest. I haven't. I haven't figured it out yet. I have a, a couple podcasts in the can already, and uh, and when I say in the can, I don't mean in the toilet. You know what I mean? Um, I have a couple of podcasts that are ready to go. That's what I mean. Uh, some of the maybe this outro should go in the can and go in the toilet, but I'm gonna keep it because it's messy and that's what I'm I'm doing. So listen, God bless, pray. Hey, listen. So much more about the contraception issue. There's a beautiful pamphlet that that Ascension Press puts out on the contraception issue. I'm not sure who wrote that one. It may be uh, Christopher West. But also go go back and check out the Christopher West episodes. It's just, they're just amazing. God, sex, and our holy mess. And it really co complements well with this episode. And even the last episode with Cheryl Riley on her story of healing and abortion. Because contraception does not, <laughs> it does not in any way, shape, or form uh, decrease the number of abortions. But it has actually increased it. So uh, check it out. Peace. Peace.